We're studying a new series for three weeks before we go to Mark's Gospel. And we're looking at the Old Testament book of Joel. It's only three chapters long. It's a small book. But uh, it has a powerful part, especially next week when we look at Joel 2. Because Joel 2 is, is quoted to us at the day of Pentecost. And so uh, today, Joel 1 is an introduction to the Spirit coming. And if you put one word on Joel, you'd put one word would be repentance. And so that's the key part. So what a bit of background behind Joel. Who is Joel? No one knows. There's about 10 Joels in the Bible. We don't know uh, which Joel it is. It just gives his name of who he is. And that it's the son of Penthuel. And uh, when was the book written? Doesn't tell us. Uh, a lot of people have had great guesses. And I've enjoyed reading their guesses. But when they guess, they therefore interpret the scripture based on their guesses, which I'm not going to do today. I'm going to uh, allow him the liberty that he had could sometime in the past and not go past that, because he, he himself does not go past that. So with that in mind, let's turn to Joel chapter 1 to the very first verse. It says that it's the word of the Lord that came to Joel. Now it's interesting. I imagine if I was a prophet with a pen in hand and I wrote the word of the Lord, this real conscious sense that God was speaking to him with the message that he should share with those around him. And imagine if he thought about it, he's thinking, this isn't just for my generation. This will be for generations after. And 30, 40 generations have passed between now and when he wrote these words. He starts his words there in chapter 2. He says this, Hear this, you elders. Give ear all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? In other words, he's saying, stop, look, listen. There's something that's occurring right now and we need to work out why. Are we doing this in Australia at the moment with our fires? Uh, people were aware that the fires back in 1851 were possibly worse than the fires we're facing now. But imagine by the end of this fire season, we would have had the worst year of fires in our life. And what does Joel say? Give ear, hear this, all you inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? He goes on to say this, Tell your children of it, and your children tell their children, and their children to another generation. So there's a sense that uh, in years to come, we'll have a great-great-grandchild on our knee, and we'll say, back in 2019, we had the worst fires in Australia's history. So what's the impact? Joel goes on to say, This play was so unusual that Joel says, Tell your children about it. Now, it's interesting, if you lived through plagues or lived through calamities, there are things that stay in your memory. I still remember back in 1974, uh, we had the massive uh, storms. And uh, I was working as a young man, uh, filling sandbags to save a friend's house. I had no idea what I was doing. All I did was fill the sandbags. However, the local newspaper took my photo and put me in the front page of the newspaper. My first time on the front page. I was quite excited by that. <laughs> But it's fascinating that uh, you talk to people about storms, most people talk about 1974. And it's interesting, people talk about different years for different fires and different events. So have these type of things, have this massive plague, which was what uh, Joel was facing, has this ever happened in recent times? Now we're talking over 105 years ago now, but back in 1915, a devastating plague of locusts covered the whole of modern-day Israel and modern-day Syria. Now, the first swarms came in March, and it said the clouds were so thick they blocked out the sun. The female locusts continued, then began to lay legs a hundred at a time. Witnesses say that in one square yard, 
there was at least 65 to 75,000 eggs. In a few weeks, they hatched and the young locusts resembled large ants. They couldn't fly yet and going along by hopping. They marched about 400 to 600 feet a day, devouring every speck of vegetation along the way. After two more stages, they became adults and they began to fly and the devastation continues. So the writer here describes the different phases or steps that you have with locusts. And as we turn to verse 4, the same steps are given there. What the cutting locusts left, in other words, the first the ones that flew in, the swarming locusts had eaten. What the swarming locusts left, the hopping locusts had eaten. And what the hopping locusts left, the destroying locusts had eaten. And it goes on in verse 10 to describe what happened. The fields are destroyed, the ground mourns because the grain is destroyed, the wine dries up and the oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil, O vineyard dressers, for the wheat and barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranates, palm and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the child of man. Now, if you're a farmer, you can see there's two steps. There's the first step, you can see the grasses and those type of products, they all die, and you say, that's okay. But when the trees start dying you know that the drought is at its very worst because trees go years without water. So for a tree to die, that is devastation. And so uh, Joel here is describing for us possibly the most devastating locust attacks they'd ever had. And it reminds us at this time as we think of uh, the people who are, who are struggling with drought or people who are struggling with fires, that there are some things that we need to think about. Now, as you see in the, the first chapter, there's only one sin Joel mentions, and it's in verse 5. Awake you drunkards and weep, and wail all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. Now, as you know, this is the only sin that's mentioned. Now, I wonder if it's mentioned because in really hard times, a lot of people turn to alcohol as their solution. And Joel is saying, yes, things are really bad, but alcohol is not the answer. And then he goes on to say, yes, there is a drought and things are devastating for you, but you also have an enemy beyond. So there in verse 6, For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are like lion's teeth and has fangs of a lioness. He has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig trees. has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. Says the grain offerings and the drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn and the ministers of the Lord. That the, uh, the, the drought and the locusts had got so devastating, they didn't even have anything in the temple to offer as a sacrifice because the drought had been so bad. And for most people, they'd say it could not get any worse than this. Now, it's interesting, what does uh, Joel do? He calls people to repentance. Now, it's interesting there's been a number of people saying, oh, our Prime Minister should call a National Day of Prayer. And that sounds very, very generous and very noble and very good thing to do. But I wonder what would happen if Scott Morrison stood up and said, I'm not going to call for a day of prayer, but I'm going to call for a day of repentance. We need to examine ourselves as a country. We have got things that are wrong with our country. And we, as a country, need to repent of our sins. How much controversy would that cause in the newspapers? So uh, that's where people would suddenly start 
standing a little bit apart from him, saying, yeah, he's a bit too over the top and he's done that. Now, it's interesting, if you look in America's history, a number of their presidents have called for day of prayer and days of repentance. And people said that's right because he's the head of the state and he should be calling for that. Now, it's interesting, one of my favourite verses is this one from 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, I'll turn from their wicked ways and I'll hear from heaven and I'll forgive their sins and heal their lands. Now, there's a verse of great encouragement telling us to pray, to pray and to repent. Now, it's interesting, most people, including myself, don't look at the verse beforehand. And uh, this week a person made a comment to me about, you know, you should look at the verse 13. And this is what it says. And for us in Australia, it is speaking to us. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people. So there's a strong sense. God says, I'll send judgments on countries. And then we have it, verse 14, if my people who call my, ma- my name will humble themselves and pray, seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I'll hear them from heaven. So where should repentance start? It should start with the church. We as Christian believers need to examine ourselves and repent. Now it's interesting, I would not see myself as being a really bad person. I don't murder, I don't steal, I don't lie, I don't cheat, I'm not... Uh, out there womanising, I'm not doing anything that's greatly bad, but the Bible says that I am a sinner. And therefore I need to take a, a, a further step back and not look at the superficial and say, what is there about my personality? What about the, my, my characteristics? What are the things that I'm doing that is inappropriate for a, a Christian to be doing? You know, examine myself hard. Are there jokes that I say that are inappropriate? Are there comments that I say that are inappropriate? Do I put people down? are the things that I need to change about myself. Because that's what repentance is. And if you want one verse to summarise repentance, it would be this, 2 Timothy 2.21. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonourable, he'll be vessel for honourable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Repentance is not remorse. Remorse is just feeling guilty about our actions. Repentance is when we stop We turn around and go the opposite way. So repentance is giving up that which is bad, but also taking on that which is good. I remember uh, hearing a very humorous story about this man who was uh, preaching in uh, Hyde Park, and this guy said, uh, you know, made very sarcastic comments to him about uh, uh, miracles and a whole lot of other things. He was just taking a, a pot shot at this guy. He says, I want to let you know my life is a miracle. I used to be an alcoholic. And when I became a Christian, the miracle was my family got fed every week. The miracle was we had money in my wallet. The miracle was that I could help people where beforehand I never did. He says, that's the greatest miracle of my life. Why? Because an alcoholic had turned from alcohol and to become a godly man to his family. So it's turning away, but it's also turning to righteousness. Now, the original word for repentance is metanoia, a Greek word. And uh, in the literal Greek, it means change of mind. And it helps us understand what repentance really means. Fundamentally, repentance is a change of mind, a switch of our outlook that esteems sin in one that considered abhorrent. 
we suddenly can turn and say, that is sinful, that is wrong. I'm going to just walk away and walk out from there. And it's important for us to remember how the scripture understands a true change of heart to one that must involve changing our intellectual mindset about the issue. So true repentance involves feelings of regret, does involve remorse, but involves action. Repentance means that we are truly sorry for something we've done and not just of its consequences. It's a desire to change our behaviour. So a repentant life is a changed life. Not in that perfection is ever obtained, but it's the fruit of repentance. It's a change of action, a change of attitudes, and being a, therefore a change in our very character. Now if you define one part of scripture that really expresses and explores repentance, it's the psalm we had earlier today, Psalm 51. I just want to look at some of the verses. Have mercy on me, O God, because you've grown failing love. Where does repentance start? It starts with the very character of God. What is God's character? One of loving, one of forgiveness, one that causes back to be family. Because of your great compassion, you will blot out the sin stains of my sin. So where does repentance start? The nature of God, knowing that he will forgive. Not by my merits, not by my goodness, but totally by his mercy. So what happens next? Verse 2. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. I will recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I've done what is evil in your sight. So what's this involved? When we repent, there's a sense of saying, right, God has forgiven me. I can live as a forgiven person. I can live as a person being washed clean. I can live a changed life. Because at the end of the day, who is our enemy in sin? It is God himself. We are fighting against God. And so we need to get our relationship with God right first. Now it goes in verse 5, so that he was born a sinner. And for some of us, that's a very hard thing to believe. Now in our modern education system, it has rejected sinners and replaced that with that we are basically good people. And so my education would have been all basically prefaced by the fact I'm a good person. And the Bible doesn't see us that way. It says, no, you are a sinful person that needs forgiveness. So if you're a good person, you think, my gosh, how did I do that bad thing? Because I'm a good person. But if you're a sinner, you can say, I did that bad thing because that is the essence of who I am. He goes on in verse 7 and says, Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. So part of repentance is God breaking our stubbornness, breaking our will, and moulding us to be the people that he wants us to be. And that is hard. It's very hard sometimes to acknowledge sin in ourselves. And it's very hard to say, God, I've got a sin that I cannot deal with. I need you to deal with this sin. In verse uh, 9, Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove, remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. There's this real sense of repentance involves total transformation, a new heart, a new self, a new being. It's interesting, um, the Bible talks about the fact that we get a new name. And if you go to some uh, cultures, especially where the Gospels come to a place like Africa and Asia, when people get baptised, they'll get given a baptismal name. 
Because there's a sense of saying, that name is who I was, this name is now who I am. Because I am a changed person. The person in my past is gone, and this is who I am now. Do not banish me from your presence, don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. There's this real strength that knowing that uh, even when we're sinning, that God will not let us go, that he holds us even more firmly. Then restore to me the joy of my salvation, make me willing to obey. That I'll teach your ways to rebels and they will return to you. So there's this real sense that seeing that repentance is restoration. We're coming back to who we should really be. So a person can say, I know that I'm not a drunkard. I know I'm not a womanizer. I know I'm not a gambler. I know God has meant me to be a good father, a godly role model to my kids. I'm designed to love my wife sacrificially and my boss should see me as a man of honour and respect. In verse 16, You do not desire sacrifice, God, for I would offer one. You don't want to burn offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You do not reject a broken and repentant heart. And so there's this true sense of repentance is the restoration to who we should really be. So going back to Joel, there in Joel chapter 1 verse 13, what does he say? The people put on sackcloth and lament, O priests, O ministers of the altar. Go in past the night in sackcloth, O minister of God, because grain offering and drink offerings are withheld from the house of God. In verse 14, consecrate a fast, call solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land. So where does repentance start? In, in a church's case, it should start with me. And then it should go to the elders and then we as a congregation and then to the rest of Australia. So it needs to start with those who are at the top. But it goes on and says, as well as this solemn lament of this real sense of you know, sackcloth and tearing your clothes, the idea of fasting. Now fasting is not um, popular in modern times. It's not a 21st century concept. Yet we find uh, fasting is mentioned numerous times throughout Scripture. Now some of the references about fasting is that you give up food and the money you'd normally spend on food, you'd use that money to give to the poor. So that's very uh, strongly presented to us in Isaiah 58. And if you want to read up on fasting, Isaiah 58 is a whole chapter about fasting. Now there's an organisation that used to be called Campus Crusade for Christ, but because they had the title Crusade in it, a lot of Muslims got upset with them, and so they're now called Crew. And uh, they had an article that gives you 10 reasons why you should fast. It says that fasting is about spiritual strength against an attack by the enemy. To break demonic bondage. Uh, it's the example of uh, Matthew 17, 21, where Jesus said to his disciples, this kind of demon does not come out except by prayer and fasting. It says that fasting is to awaken the spiritual hunger for God that may be dulled because of our desire for other things. It's to test and see what desires control us. It's to forfeit good things for the better and the best. To express our ache for his return, Jesus said, I have food to eat that I know nothing about. It's to demonstrate our love and desire for God above all things. It's to divide our bread with the poor. So as it said in Isaiah 58, to house the homeless, poor, to loosen bonds of wickedness and let the oppressed go free. And so there's a sense that sometimes we may fast. Uh, I, I regularly fast once or twice a week, I, I, most weeks. And uh, part of it is, I think, that money that I spend on food, I will give that towards ministry. But I'm also aware that um, I become very conscious how hungry I am by the end of the third, uh, 
at the end of 24 hours. And uh, fasting there makes you think, I should also be spiritually hungry. I should be consciously aware when I don't read the scriptures. Now the last part that we'll touch on today, but we'll come up further in the, the sermons, is what's called the day of the Lord. So there in verse 15, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and destruction from the Almighty it comes. Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joying gladness from the house of God? The seed shrivels under the clods, the storehouse are desolate, the granaries are torn up, and the grain has dried up. To you, O Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures and wilderness, and flame has burnt all the trees of the fields. Even the beasts of the fields pant for you because the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wickedness. And we are living in bushfire time, and these verses here have that same imagery, image, uh, images for us of what fire is like. So while we're away, we uh, had the interesting situation of uh, seeing a fire alert at Chamhaven, where we've got a house that uh, was originally going to be our retirement house, but it's not now, but we still have it. And so we raced over in the car, and uh, we waited for about 20 minutes. We knew the fire was coming, uh, because the fire alerts had said it was coming. And we just waited till eventually you saw in the distance flames flickering through the trees. Ten minutes later, you could see them about 100 metres away. And then ten minutes later, the fire hit the edge of the road. Now it's fascinating for me because I'm thinking there's a very fine line between the edge of the road on one side and the edge of the road on the other. You're talking probably, what, five metres? And the fire hit the road and it was stopped. But it could easily have just jumped the road because it already jumped the road once to get to where it was. And when the fire moved from where it stopped, it jumped the road a second time. And the road it jumped was the Pacific Highway, which was a lot wider than the road that these firemen were standing on. And so you're thinking there's an intense fine line between no houses lost and 50 houses lost. Because once one house starts, the next house starts, the next house starts. And these are the words that Joel uses here. To you, O Lord, I call, the fire has devoured the pastures, the wilderness, the flames have burned all the trees of the field. The fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. What is Joel saying to you and I? If we want the country to repent, it must start with us. And from my point of view, if it starts with us, it must start with us as elders and leaders of the church. That we need to be repentant, call upon God, because we know he and he alone is the one who holds the reign. He and the one who holds the future. Next week will be a chapter of encouragement, because it talks about the blessings that comes after the drought, the blessings that come after the locusts, the blessings that come after the fire. But what's between the blessings and the curse? That moment of repentance that each of us are called to. Let's just go ahead and pray. Father God, it's so easy to criticise our culture and our country. And far harder to come to you now and say, Father, forgive us for what we've done. Father, may we repent. May we examine ourselves. May we come before your holy throne and say, God, change us, mould us, use us. May we be your children. May we stand firm and faithfully with a hunger for holiness, 
and a desire to serve you always. Amen.